Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Suffering and Triumph of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message, The Sufferings of Jesus, part 3. When many hear the word guilt, see, I have no doubt it conjures up very negative images. You know, often our culture thinks of guilt in terms of guilt feelings. And if there's something our culture excels in doing, it's in convincing us that guilt feelings are all very bad things. And so it's not uncommon to hear a counselor or a personal therapist telling his or her client, you know, you're a good person. You've done bad things, but it's only because you're either abused as a child or you found yourself in an impossible situation or because you acted out of your own woundedness. But when you realize your inherent goodness, well, you'll be able to rid yourself from all the feelings you have of guilt, and then you'll start acting positively. So listen, guilt feelings are a rather interesting thing. I'm sure you agree. See, it's true that sometimes people do feel guilty about things they should not feel guilty about. For instance, someone becomes angry with us because of a supposed slight. Maybe they think we've ignored them in the past or some comment that we've made was directed at them when it really wasn't. And so they become angry and we might feel guilty. Well, we shouldn't feel guilty because these feelings are not based on objective fact. And so, fair enough. There is no reason to feel guilty about that for which you're not responsible. So, for instance, if your spouse has committed adultery, don't you feel guilty as if you failed them? Even if you weren't the kind of husband or wife that you were called to be, you didn't cause them to commit adultery. That was his or her choice. Hear me. If you committed adultery, the last thing you should do is rid yourself of guilt feelings. See, you're guilty, and that's why you feel guilty. You need to repent and come clean and turn from your sins and call on grace. Justifying what you've done is the wrong thing to do. See, the reason why Christ died is for all of us who are guilty before God. When the Bible uses the word guilt— It almost never uses that word in relation to guilt feelings. When the Bible speaks about guilt, it uses the concept in a legal fashion. So think about it this way. When you go to court, the judge doesn't ask you if you feel guilty. Instead, evidence is presented to find out if you are guilty. So consider James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. Notice the word guilty. Notice it has nothing to do with feelings. Rather, what's in mind is real objective guilt in which the law has spoken and in which you've fallen short. The death of Jesus, as described in the Bible, is an atonement. And that means that our salvation was earned by Christ. We didn't earn salvation. Christ has earned it on our behalf. It was love that drove Jesus to the cross, but it was the demands of justice that he paid our penalty on our behalf. Consider 2 Peter 2, verse 4. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. 
And then the next verse, verse 5, speaking of God condemning the ancient world, subjecting them to a global flood. And then next verse, verse 6, speaks of God turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. The universal testimony of Scripture is that sin and our consequent legal guilt demands that justice be done. When we say that Jesus died on the cross as an atonement for our sin, we are saying that Jesus' death satisfies the demands of justice on our behalf. Today is my last in a description of the sufferings of Jesus. And up till now, I've argued that Jesus suffered the whole of his life, but that suffering culminated in his death on the cross. And furthermore, I spent most of the time discussing the physical nature of Christ's suffering. But when we come to the heart of the atoning work of Christ, we're moving to another aspect of his suffering, a suffering that was so great that it eclipses the physical pain he endured on the cross. So let's begin by speaking about what Christ endured as he became our sin-bearer. Let me draw attention to four relevant scripture passages that speak to this issue. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now to Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then Hebrews 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, and 1 Peter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. See, every one of these passages tell us that our sins were laid on Christ. He was our sin substitute. He was offered up in our place. He was our representative on the cross. The Lord laid our sins onto Christ. Christ was cursed for us. He bore our sins. He was offered up for us. So putting it all together, we might look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, and I'm quoting the passage from the New American Standard Bible. There it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, that passage often expresses what has been called the great exchange. The one who had no sin was made sin on our behalf. We, on the other hand, who are weighed down by sin, are made righteous. An exchange happened. He bore our sin. We bore his righteousness. That means that in Christ, our sins no longer count against us. And in Christ, we are good enough for heaven because his track record speaks on our behalf. But what does all that mean when it comes to Christ's experience with suffering? Well, think of it this way. Think of the pain that we feel when we know that we've sinned. So imagine, for instance, a husband who has had a wonderful relationship with his wife. But because he does not guard his ways, on one occasion he commits adultery and the matter becomes known. And suddenly a relationship that was once filled with joy, which gave love, is now shattered. Immediately he experiences pain. The, the relationship is now shrouded with his own sin. Now multiply that when we think of the distance that has come about because of our many sins against God. 
See, the reason why some of us are atheists and we find no evidence of God is that it is God himself who has hidden himself from us. The reason many can't see God is because he has withdrawn because of our sin. Now, in contrast, imagine the experience of Jesus. See, his relationship with the Father was as intimate as it could be. Many times that was exemplified as he went to a lonely place to pray and to revel in the relationship that he enjoyed with God. And when it came to sin and to evil and to rebellion, while he hated it, his heart utterly rejected it. And in some small way, all born-again children of God understand what Jesus went through. You see, when we grow in holiness, we, like Jesus, feel a revulsion against sin, against evil, and rebellion against God. Jesus felt that many times more than we do. And from that, we must ask ourselves what revulsion he must have felt when he took upon himself the sin of the world. How his soul must have instinctively found such a burden of bearing our sin to be suffocating. But more, Jesus voluntarily took our place. He willingly became our sin bearer even while he found this a horrible experience. But of course, his spiritual suffering as our sin bearer doesn't end there. While he struggled as our sin substitute, he was abandoned by all around him. In Mark 14, 34, while he's praying in Gethsemane, he told his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death, remain here and watch. And he simply didn't want to bear this all alone. And yet, as we know, his disciples fell asleep in Gethsemane. And then when he was arrested and tried and beaten, they abandoned him entirely, so much so that Peter himself even denied that he'd ever known him. And perhaps the agony of walking alone is best highlighted by the words that Matthew records him speaking on the cross. See, Matthew 27, verse 46 says, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Having been abandoned by all, he's also abandoned by his father. And so he suffers under the awful weight of being our sin bearer. He does so with no one standing with him. Listen to the words of the old hymn. It was alone the Savior prayed in dark Gethsemane. Alone he drained the bitter cup for me. It was alone the Savior stood in Pilate's judgment hall. Alone the crown of thorns he wore, forsaken thus by all. Alone upon the cross he hung, that others he might save. Forsaken then by God and man, alone his life he gave. Alone, alone, he bore it all alone. He gave himself to save his own. He suffered, bled, and died alone, alone. This month, Dr. Neufeld will continue his video series, The Missionary God, which airs weekly on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. We believe these messages are so important for believers that we want to send you the expanded message series on CD for free. We'll explore questions like, why is it that God can allow so much suffering in the world? And why has God commanded us to make disciples of all nations? There are so many challenging questions, and though they may make us feel uncomfortable at times, they require Bible-focused responses. So join us this month on air, online, via podcast, or listen on the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. 
Don't forget to ask for your free CD copy of this important series by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I find it so very reassuring to know that God's children will never be alone. See, Jesus promised us that he would never leave us or forsake us. And, and Romans 8:34 promises us that Jesus is right now at the right hand of God, interceding for you. That promise is reinforced in Hebrews 7:25, which says, He always lives to make intercession for them. And that means, of course, us. And so, child of God, know this. You are never alone. Your friends might desert you, but your God will never desert you. You will never be taken from his loving gaze. His favor will always rest on you. So take solace. What a precious truth. But at the same time, please also remember that Jesus had no such solace. He walked the way to the cross, even abandoned by his Father. And this matter brings us to the very depth of his suffering, a suffering we simply can't even begin to grasp. On the cross, Jesus bore up under the righteous anger of God. Now, this matter is often misunderstood as well as it is often denied. So does the Bible teach it? Well, in the end, that's the first and most important question of all. So let's begin with two Bible texts from the book of Hebrews that speaks about the righteous anger of God. The first is found in Hebrews 10, verses 29 to 31. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, there is, of course, enough material in this verse that that actually demands an extensive analysis. But for our purposes, notice how God views some sins. He calls them deserving of punishment. He says that the sinner has trampled the Son of God underfoot, that his actions have outraged the Holy Spirit, that God is determined to inflict vengeance. The writer of Hebrews remarks that to fall into the hands of an incensed, righteous God, well, that's terrifying. It's, it's horrifying. It should fill us with an awesome sense of dread. I remark on this because not long ago, I was asked why it is that the Old Testament God is wrathful and the New Testament God is gracious. Now, I won't go over all how I answered, but notice, in the text in Hebrews, it's a New Testament context. Clearly, this dichotomy between Old and New Testament that so many people have is simply not true. I go forward to Hebrews 12, 28 to 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. See, this passage is a passage about our salvation. We have inherited the reign of God. God's kingdom is our inheritance. The fact that it cannot be shaken means that this kingdom can't be taken from us. And that's precious, for our God is a consuming fire. He righteously consumes all that sins, all that is opposed to his kingdom. Were we not invited into the kingdom, well, we'd be consumed by the wrath of God. 
And so please grasp this thought. We are saved from sin to be sure, but you are also saved from the righteous anger of God. That is a doctrine that is constantly reinforced in Scripture. So now to the cross. Did Jesus suffer the wrath of the Father while he was on the cross? And again, instead of offering up our own theories on this matter, let's let the Bible speak for itself. I offer up four important Bible texts that speak directly to this very issue. First, since I've been quoting from the book of Hebrews, let's begin with Hebrews 2, verse 17. Speaking of Jesus, the passage says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Now, the key word there is the word propitiation. Jesus made propitiation for the sins of his people. Well, well, what does that mean? So interestingly enough, the word propitiation, well, it's an old English word, a word that has no contemporary equivalent in the English language today. It comes from a Greek word. The Greek word is hilasterion. It's a word that means a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God. So compare what we've just read with John 3, verse 36. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But when one believes on the Son, the wrath of God has been removed. Well, how has it been removed? Well, according to Hebrews 2.17, Jesus made propitiation for you. That is, he became a wrath-bearing sacrifice. Now, consider that this is not the only time the Bible speaks that way. 1 John 2 verse 2 says, he is the propitiation for our sins. And 1 John 4 verse 10 says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But the key text is found in Romans 3.25. It speaks of Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And then the same verse adds, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So Paul says the reason God did not throw previous generations of saints into hell the moment they sinned, well, was because he had planned that his son would be a wrath-bearing sacrifice. In the sufferings of Jesus, he bore the rightful punishment for all for whom he would die. And so we can say with biblical certainty that Jesus on the cross suffered under the righteous anger of God, a righteous anger that was directed against sin, against our sin. And once we understand that, we can make sense out of so much of the sufferings of Jesus. Let's go back to Gethsemane. You remember that Jesus was praying with such intensity that the blood vessels in his forehead were breaking and his blood was falling onto the ground. And what was he praying? Well, Matthew 26 verse 39 records, and going a little further, He fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus is here alluding to an Old Testament image. So listen to Jeremiah 25, 15. There it says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I will send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword I am sending among them. 
Or listen to Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah has a similar image in Isaiah 51. The cup is the cup of the Lord's anger. And Jesus in the garden realized that now he was going to the cross and he was given that very cup, and his soul shrunk in horror at what was given to him. I mean, this natural revulsion led him to the most agonizing prayer in human history. Father, if in any way salvation can be brought about by me not having to drink this cup, I plead with you that you take it away. And of course, Jesus obeyed the Father even in this. He willingly took the cup from the Father's hand, and he drank the full measure of that cup and suffered under the righteous anger of God. See, nothing I can say of the suffering of Jesus can possibly describe such suffering. And so when he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it's right to think of it as follows. Jesus knew that his sacrifice was pleasing to the Father. He knew he would be vindicated. He knew he would rise from the dead. But his plaintive cry was about the six hours he suffered under the wrath of God. Wave after wave of the anger of God was poured out onto him. And he suffered in ways that that make us shield our eyes, close our ears, and cry out in terror how deeply the Son suffered for us. Now, I know, I know, there are those who are going to argue that, that we should reject such a view, for they say that would amount to cosmic child abuse. And to that I respond as follows. The Bible clearly says that's exactly what happened. And truly, that is what happened on the cross. It's an act of outrageous blasphemy to hear of the depths of Christ's suffering for us and then to simply respond, well, it just didn't happen that way. It's like saying the Holocaust didn't happen. How dare you dishonor the sufferings of Jesus? Instead, child of God, be overwhelmed. That's how God loved you. His son suffered so that you would not. Rather than protest, would you rather worship For Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, says 1 Peter 3.18, that he might bring us to God. John, why is it that the anger of God towards Jesus on the cross is so important? Man, I think it's because uh, in our day, we are suffering from a, a view of God, which is, it's some kind of a benign view of God that we have. We no longer see as God uh, terrible in his righteousness, and we don't fear God. And so we have now reconstructed the whole story of the cross in such a way that, you know, the cross is a wonderful example of, you know, uh, loving and forgiving enemies. But instead, the cross is this, it's atonement. Thanks, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. anyone seeking to know God or to understand the Bible and how it can be applied to your daily life, Back to the Bible Canada provides trustworthy Bible teaching resources addressing relevant questions of life and faith. If you believe in the importance of sharing the Word of God across our nation, perhaps you'd consider offering a financial gift to support Back to the Bible Canada this month. Or consider even becoming a member of our 1119 Fellowship, our monthly giving program. 
Your regular gift ensures that the daily Bible teaching program you're hearing right now is heard in your community and across the country. Your gift of any amount allows the Word of God to reach those searching for truth. To send a one-time gift or to become an 1119 monthly partner, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.